Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk turned traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world. That ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Hi, I'm Keegan. And I'm Madigan. And you're listening to Your Your Angry Angry Neighborhood Neighborhood Feminist. Feminist. This is a podcast where we explore the world through our own personal feminist perspectives. And it's Black History Month! Black History Month! Which is like... My favorite month it's, of all time. It's like Keegan's Christmas all it month. Really, long, which is, is like uh, maybe that's the wrong is, way of putting it because there's a lot of really sad history. <laughs> one, there's a lot of really sad history, but still, I'm here for it. Yeah, um, I'm here to learn more about all of it. But two, again, I'm going to reiterate: it's the shortest month of the year, and I'm still salty about it. Yes, one year later, still salty, still salty, forever salty. But isn't it crazy that we started this podcast at the end of January last year, and then yeah. we kind of went like right into Black History Month yes, and it we feels did. weird to kind of like be doing this whole process again it, of like talking uh, about you know, these themed months again. It didn't feel weird until you just said that and now I'm like we yeah. were sitting in these exact spots it a feels year weird. ago talking about this exact yes, topic. Yes, it, it does feel weird because a year doesn't feel like it like went by. No. So it's crazy. Time is a flat circle. Right. And I feel very old what right now. What is it? Um, so today we're going to be talking about black women in the suffrage movement, which yes. we we talked a lot last year, if you remember. Let's rewind a year ago. We we went through all the different... Um, I was going to talk about the waves of feminism, which we did, which yes. wasn't part of Black History Month. But if you remember our Women's History Month, we went through the waves where we talk a lot about um, how the abolitionist movement very much spurred... The suffrage right. movement. And I am going to get a little deeper into that in this episode because yes. I do think it is really necessary for building the base yeah. uh, as far as the way black women were really feeling in the suffrage movement. And the way that they were treated. That's what most of my notes are on Okay, is, is I mean, during all of that kind honestly, of stuff. Honestly, me too. There's some stuff beyond that. Um, it really is something that I feel like as feminists we forget a lot that right. the feminist movement didn't start with a bunch of upper class white ladies who were sick of being housewives. There were actually, there were a lot of allies. There were Mm -hmm. a lot of white women who were allies. There were also a lot of very strong, powerful black women who started the abolitionist movement. And as the popularity of the suffrage movement, as that popularity grew, they realized they had to kind of pull back some of their support. Yeah. Because they needed, they wanted, they were so gung-ho on getting what they wanted for the rights right. for certain women. And there were reasons for that, and we'll yeah. address those reasons. But, um, but at- we can't see it as just being a simply positive thing. It's very important to see some of the uh, kind of seedy underlying a- absolutely, things because involving it. I-, I think what's important to acknowledge and remember is that a lot of the feminist history that was being written was being written by Elizabeth Cady Stanton mm-hmm. and Susan B. Anthony. Got some quotes by them. Yeah, and so it... 
in large part, kind of eliminated a lot of the more problematic things. She and it all of history. Yeah, <laughs> yes, all of history. And then it also eliminated a lot of the women of color, or particularly African-American women, black women, who led these movements. That was a sly taking off bra Thank you. Movement. If you guys heard any rustling, I tried to be very quiet, but throughout that entire sentence, I was removing my bra through my sweater, so... I, w- I thought you were scratching yourself or something. You are welcome. And all of a sudden, a bra <laughs> just went... I didn't even wear one today. I was like, I'm wearing the shirt I wore to bed Ugh. last night. I'm like... Fuck it, it I'm had an, stinking. It had an underwire. I was like, I, Fuck I can't do this. I'm Fuck. in pain. Fuck underwire. I don't have any underwire bras. Fuck them. <laughs> Moving on. Back to the topic anyway. of conversation. So the women's suffrage movement gained popularity through the 19th century. And African-American women were, as we said, increasingly marginalized. The struggles to vote did not end with the 19th Amendment for black women. And in some southern states, uh, black women were unable to vote up until the 1960s. So we think of a lot of this stuff as being very dated. It's not. But think about the 1960s. My mother was born in the 1960s. That's not not anything radical or insane. Yeah. So during the abolitionist movement is really when a lot of women kind of came into their own. It was the first time that they were actively engaged in any kind of movement. It was a way for kind of like the quote-unquote board housewives to have some sort of say in their lives and politics, and they felt like there could be a place for their voice. Right. I mean, and beyond that, I mean, these women did really care about abolition. I think that it was something that they felt strongly about, their husbands felt strongly about, and the abolitionist movement, not only was it a way for them to get their feet wet as far as understanding reform and how to go about starting movements and organizing these, these movements... Uh, but also these movements, these abolitionist movements, they were very inclusive for the yeah. first time. They were not only saying, I guess we'll let these women in. They were actively in a lot of in a lot of cases saying we want women to be an integral part of our movement. Yeah. And we want to fight for suffrage yeah. for them as well. Like a lot of these men we in wanna, these abolitionist movements, they were like, it was very intersectional at the start. They were yeah. like, we are going to work for you. You're going to work for us. We're all underprivileged. Let's do this thing together. Yeah, which, I mean, sounds like the perfect plan. But obviously, things start to change. Uh, racism in the early 20th, early 20th century made it so that black women were oppressed from every side, from their status as women to their status with their with their race. And that's kind of what you just said, where it's like they did have a lot in common when it came to their status as women. But their status of their race kind of lowered them even more. So they were really on the bottom of the food chain. Right. So um, this is what we're talking about when we talk about, like, intersectionality, right? And that's going to be a common theme throughout most of this talk. So... In 1837, more than 1,000 anti-slavery groups existed, mm-hmm. which is incredible. I mean, that's that's pretty impressive. Mm-hmm. But 75, which seems like a small number, but you have to keep in mind the time. Yeah. 75 of which consisted of women, and women yeah. were an active role. So we've talked about Lucretia Mott before. We talked about her not only in our first wave episode, which I highly recommend if you just started this episode and you haven't listened to our first wave feminism episode. Yeah. Stop this episode. Go listen to that one, then come back to this one. Yeah. Um, I think that we'll be kind of referencing some of that there, stuff a There's lot. a lot that's being referenced from yeah. that. But Lucretia Mott, she created the Philadelphia Female Anti-Slavery Society, of which there were a lot of 
prominent at the time female abolitionists. So there's a woman named Grace Bustle Douglas, Sarah Maps Douglas, Margareta and Sarah Fortin, and Harriet Fortin Purvis, and these are all black women and who the were. Oh, oh yeah, was white, but yes, <laughs> the Grimke sisters were white. They were also yeah. highly involved. I thought you were, I didn't know you were going to end that sentence that way. <laughs> yes, but these women were black abolitionists, females yeah. who were very active in this community. Yeah, and they they Smallest. focused on very progressive issues at the time, including the sexual abuse of slave women, which was highly progressive at the time. Very highly progressive. I mean, if we're talking about more, I mean, this this list kind of goes across time pretty quickly, but some other black abolitionists and suffragettes were Harriet Tubman, Sojourner mm-hmm. Truth, Mary Church Terrell, Ella Baker, yes, Rosa yes. Parks, Angela Davis. Ida B. Wells. Ida B. Wells. And did I not say her? Because I had her. I have her in my notes otherwise. I thought she was part of that group. I don't know, but we will talk about but, her later because yeah, she's will. amazing. But they played such important roles in contributing to the growing process and effort to end African-American women's disenfranchisement. Um, they were discriminated against, abused, raped by white Southerners and Northerners, yet they remained strong and persisted, and that strength was passed down from generation to generation. They're amazing. Yes. So let's talk a little bit about the Seneca Falls Convention, which, yes. again, is something we talked about in yep. the First Wave Feminism episode. So. Yep. This Seneca Falls Convention is widely believed to be the birth or the start of the suffragette movement. There's a lot of debate about that because there were conventions previous to this. But this is the one that is most often recognized. And it was led by Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton. And this is kind of where we start to see a little bit of a divide. divide. Like, not so much. It's still fairly intersectional, but... But but the implications and who's in charge, you're starting to kind of see the separation between the races when it comes to Right. Like, for instance, we just named a bunch of black suffragettes who were... for the most part of that list, were around at this time. Yeah. None of them were at the Seneca Falls Convention. No. The only person of color, or I should stop saying that, the only African-American person there was Frederick Douglass. So we mentioned these other black female abolitionists, and if you don't recognize any of their names, or very few of their names, it's because... Of how history was written. Many of them were scrubbed from history books. Like, yeah. you hear about Sojourner Truth, you hear about Harriet Tubman, um, you hear about Ida B. Wells, but you don't hear about a lot of these other black yeah. activists. Well, what I have written is that the Seneca Falls Declaration put forth a political analysis of the condition of upper-class married women, but did not address the struggles of working-class white women or black women. Right. Black and white women organized separately due to the class and racial tensions within the movement and the and differences in their overall goals in the movement. So this is really where, you know, they started to realize that their goals, while they thought they were so similar, were differing in so many ways, and they were leaving out such a large chunk of the population. Right. So I think something that's important to recognize here, so I think that was 1838. So there's still a good amount of intersectionality going on in 1838, even though they leave out a lot, there's a lot of class issues and race issues. Clearly, yeah. they leave out a lot of um, lower class white women and African American women. But in 1850, there's the first Massachusetts Women's Rights Convention, and that is where Sojourner Truth does her. Ain't I um, a woman? Actually, sorry, that was in the 1851 convention, but Sojourner Truth was documented to have spoken at that one. Mm-hmm. But. 
Something to keep in mind. So those two conventions, the first Massachusetts Women Women's Rights Convention and then the convention in Ohio where Sedona Truth gave her Ain't I a Woman speech, um, between those two conventions is when the Fugitive Slave Act was enacted. Okay. So this was an act that basically said that if slaves fled to the north, they could still be caught, brought, brought back, back to the south, um, and anyone harboring them could be considered liable, essentially. So it kind of drew a line in the sand for white suffragists. And you talk about Susan B. Anthony's kind of, like, single-mindedness and saying, like, suffrage or nothing, right? Yeah, she she believed in universal suffrage. She felt that if only one group were given the right to vote, but it should be white women. So she believed that there should be a right to vote for everybody. But then there's, she infamously stated that she would rather cut off this right arm of mine before I will ever work for or demand the ballot for right. the Negro and not the woman. Right. And that kind of happened a little later on. Like so it just, like, didn't have to be said. You know what I mean? D- well, it's like... Both her and Elizabeth Cady Stanton used some real spicy language <laughs> uh, that we will not repeat on this podcast yeah. um, when talking about African-American men in particular. Yeah. But, so... Because of this Fugitive Slave Act, it left a lot of white feminists feeling like they could not bring with them a black speaker. Like, Sojourner Truth was a black speaker, and a lot of white women were, like, like low-key racist, where they're like, yeah. we have nothing against you, but we're in an area where white men in particular will be hostile towards you. And we want to get will, them on our side. it will affect our overall movement. Yeah, and something that I think spelled it out really well when talking about their goals, uh, where most black women sought to better their lives, sought to better the lives on black women alongside black men and children, which set them apart from their white counterparts, where their white counterparts focused a lot on obtaining an individual betterment exclusively for women. So I feel like it also kind of mirrors a lot of what's going on today, where I feel like when we talk about white feminist and white feminism, it's very much individualized. It's the right. things that direct that directly affect them, but they don't think about the broader scale. And I think that's just like as you were just saying that, where it's like we're here for you. We get what you're saying, but we can't bring you along. Where it's still that individualized. I got to make sure my needs are met. So right. you're going to take the back. Well, and there's a real cultural reason why black women felt that way where they felt like they needed to be there for their communities and not just for themselves, whereas white women have kind of existed in this privileged existence for this long, where they're just like, no, my white husband has enough shit. I'm going to go ahead and do my thing. And there's a really interesting passage from this book called African American Women and the Struggle for the Vote by Rosalind Turborg Penn, where she says, um, she's basically talking about how after the emancipation of slaves in 1863... Quote, the immediate priority of freed women was to find lost loved ones and to establish viable households while attempting to counter white terrorism. So their priority wasn't we need the right to vote. It was like we need to salvage our lives and our communities. And so they were more inclusive of black men because they were like we need to our communities need to. Well, and they definitely struggled to stay in the forefront of like the whole political political sphere of that, uh, many reformers tended to assume the rhetoric assuming black to be male, women to be white. And that started after the Civil War. And that's something you still kind of, you don't, obviously no one says that, but there is this kind of 
feeling as like a black woman where you don't really know where you belong. Like you're either a feminist or you're a black rights activist and there's not a lot in between. Right. And it it stems very early on from this kind of divide that developed. Yeah, but I feel like honestly with the way that we discuss feminism, I believe that being a feminist is being on both sides. Absolutely. Well, that that's intersectionality, yeah. but because of, I think, the birth of this idea, there's a lot of black women who do not want to identify themselves as feminists because yeah. of this kind of really racist I don't blame them. origin story. I don't blame them. Yeah. I have an interesting Elizabeth Cady Stanton quote. Please. She says, it's better to be the slave of an educated white man than, a, than of a degraded black one, <laughs> arguing that black men would be despotic if granted the vote. So suddenly that would mean that, like, it's bad enough that we have to be degraded by these white men, but imagine being degraded by right. black men. Yes. And so if we want to start talking about that a little bit and where that came from. So let me skip ahead a bit. I'm going to go back and forth. Please do. But I will skip ahead as to where this animosity comes from. So both that Elizabeth Cady Stanton quote and the Susan B. Anthony quote kind of come from a time when after the Civil War, after the Civil War is when you really see the stark, you can see cracks kind of in the veneer of the feminist movement, or rather the suffrage movement, with Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony, but on a whole, it was still fairly intersectional. Yeah. After the Civil War is where you see a huge, like, huge line in the sand drawn between blacks and whites. And it does leave black women in this, black women who were very involved in this abolitionist movement in a really weird space. Yeah. So... After the 15th Amendment passed, or the 15th Amendment was getting ready to pass, and the 15th Amendment was going to allow black men, because the law writers wrote male in the verbiage of of the 15th Amendment, it really set uh, Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony off. Like, they were pissed, because they were like, we've been here fighting for the right to vote for women and we were here they say they think fighting for your right as a black american to be free yeah. and after all of this black men are going to be allowed the right to vote before white women. women and this is when Elizabeth Cady Stanton basically went on to say, why would you want to give the vote to black men who are literate and, you know... Oh, there was a whole thing about, like, the educated suffragists, which left out a whole... Which left out our African-American community. And also left out uneducated white people, white women, you know? So it was very classist and very racist. And at this point, they basically said, after the emancipation where black people were freed, quote-unquote. Yeah. They basically said, our job here is done. Let's yeah. put all of our energy... It doesn't matter, like, what else happens to the black you community. You got this. Let's move Yeah, on. so we need to get the right to vote. Yeah. At the cost of whatever. Yeah, you know at, what I at mean? the cost of pushing black women out of the way. Yeah, because where, where does that say. leave black women? So their husbands can vote, quote-unquote. I say that in quotes because we're going to move into the Jim Crow era where... You still can't vote. Yeah, <laughs> you know they made it. They made it very difficult for people to vote. Right for black people to vote. Yeah. So you know, so black women are in this place where they still can't vote as where the white suffragists 
suffragists and abolitionists who they worked alongside are telling them that their skin color makes them stupid, or at least it makes their husband stupid and not worthy of the vote. So what does that say about them? Yeah. And then you have black men on the other side who maybe aren't as aren't supportive of the suffragette movement either. So black women were really left in this really fucked up middle space. Yeah, they didn't really have a voice at all because they they weren't given the opportunity to to be a part of it in any way. They right. just weren't talked about. And it should be said also that, like, again, we've touched on this, but white suffragists were largely middle class and up. Yeah. This allowed them the time yeah. and energy, because most of them didn't work outside the home, yeah. to put a lot of effort into these movements. Like, black women were not afforded the same. Yeah. Neither were working class women. No, they so. were So the National Women's Suffrage Association began... Uh, the support for their cause for the suffragettes and realized that the exclusion of black women would help them gain more support, which resulted in a more narrow view of women's suffrage. And that's just kind of a clearer way of what we were saying earlier about the, like, not just the individual people, but the whole groups of people that were leaving out black women in the conversation. They considered the National Federation of Colored Women's Clubs to be a liability to the association due to the Southern white women's attitudes toward black women getting the vote. So they really were trying to... uh, appeal to whatever audience they were in and saying and doing what they felt was going to be able to further them even further. And like you said, they had the time and more of the resources to do these things. So what they said went pretty much. Right. Yes. So um, if we're moving ahead to that, in the 1880s and 1890s, through basically the 1920s and kind of petered off in the 1930s after women had the right to vote, you see the birth of something called Black Women's Clubs. Yeah. And this is actually really cool and something that I had not really known about. So these clubs had goals that were unique to African-American women. They were African-American women who saw a very unique void in their community that needed to be filled. Yeah. uh, Because they didn't fit in with white suffragists. Uh, suffragists, and they did not fit in necessarily with their husbands and brothers and black uh, counterparts, male counterparts. So they pushed for access to education Mm -hmm. first. They knew that a lot of black women were not given the ability to access any kind of education. Yeah. Well, in 1892, the Colored Women's League was founded in Washington, D.C. by Helen Cook, who was the president. And that was one of the things. They fought for black suffrage and they held night classes. Yeah, which is super cool. Yeah. They they found ways to benefit their race within their communities, which yeah. was really, really cool. And they did a ton of, like, grassroots organizing within their city. So they would keep it local until they were able to, like, branch out wider and wider. Yeah. A, a Boston area group under the leadership of Booker T. Washington called the the National Federation of African American Women joined the Colored Women's League, and in 1896, both groups joined together to join the National Association of Colored Women under the leadership of Mrs. Mary Church Terrell. Yes, Mary Church Terrell is also a that would be a good like forgotten feminist fave. Because yeah, I want to do one of those next week. Yeah, sure, because you don't learn a lot about her uh, in the history books and actually there's a lot of names that came up in my research that we haven't really like covered necessarily but yeah it would take a while for us to cover every single person yes but there there were quite a few people who came up in my in my research Mm -hmm. who i had never heard of Mm -hmm. black women suffragists or abolitionists or both yeah most like oftentimes both who did crazy incredible things you know people who let me see actually i'll go back in there was a woman 
by the name of Marianne Shand Carey, who was an immigrationist, which is something that I had not even heard of. It was kind of a more extreme example of a abolitionist or um, kind of, it would be considered like a far left Okay. Group. Um, and she was an immigrationist, which was basically people who wanted to take freed black people and get mm-hmm. them out of the United States altogether. Like, yeah. they were like, do you want to immigrate? We will figure out how to get you out of the United States uh, completely. Yeah. It was on the more radical end of things. So she was a powerful woman. She ran an anti-slavery newspaper the Provincial Freeman, where she and her sister published articles about women's struggles both against slavery and gender discrimination, and she in, even included white suffrage movements in her paper. So it was... Which I think is very big of her. Yeah, it was highly intersectional. It was just like, I'm a woman, I'm a black woman, I'm going to include black issues, I'm going to include women's issues. Like, yeah. we're going to talk about all of these things. Yeah. And Lucretia Mott even gave gave them money for their paper. Love and it. the interesting thing I found about why their paper ended up not working out or prospering it has less to do with them being black and more to do with them being women like people did not like that these were female editors writing articles and telling them what to do and um marianne continued to campaign for women's rights and women's suffrage for the next 25 years that's amazing so that is incredible gotta know more about her yeah totally okay so the national american women's suffrage association developed the idea of the educated suffragists they believed that being educated was an important part of being allowed the right to vote since many black men and women at the time were uneducated this notion meant exclusion from their right to vote and as a result many women worked to get african-americans involved including the suffrage movement by focusing on the education of african-american communities yeah and i think that's really cool because there were those people that were able to see that like they were leaving somebody out and then there were were they were the allies that were able to see well then what can we do then like you said a lot of these grassroots movements right. to be able to help educate them so they can't use that argument anymore, right exactly which I think is really cool me too because what they're saying is like all right it doesn't matter if what they're saying is right or wrong like what they're saying could be totally wrong because listen all these uneducated white guys have been able yeah. to vote for fucking ever but Regardless of that, if they're going to try and use this argument, you know what? You guys deserve to be educated anyway, so we're going to go ahead and do that. Yeah. And I know that these um, black women's clubs did a lot of that. And uh-huh. they were really self-improvement groups at the beginning. Uh, and they allowed for, like, education and, and betterment around the 19, uh, the 1890s and onward. And you see these groups shift from being betterment groups into social activism as white suffrage groups started to kind of pull away from them. Of course, yeah. there were, there were, you know, white suffragettes who stuck by them. Yeah. I don't want to ignore those people because those people existed. I don't want this, uh, this episode to come across as, like, all white suffragists were racist. Like, I don't believe that. A lot of the ones high up were. But, no, there were definitely still people who were good. But the movement as a whole started yeah. to turn their back on black people around the 1890s, mm-hmm. you know, uh, into the 1900s. And at that point we start to see Jim Crow growing into prominence yeah. into in the late 1800s into the early 1900s. We've talked about Jim Crow laws before, but you want to give a definition of what it is? So Jim Crow laws were state and local laws that enforced racial segregation in the United States, in the southern United States. All were enacted in the late 19th and early 20th centuries by white Democratic-dominated state legislators after the Reconstruction period. The laws were enforced until 1965. Um, 
laws were enforced till 1964, but yeah. but that's a loose year kind yeah. of after that too. Yeah. Let's go ahead and say that <laughs> yeah. first of all. And secondly, I do want to make a caveat, a little asterisk here around Democratic dominated state legislators. I was hoping you were going to um, think about that. Yes, because and I will try and find the video. I found I found a video that so clearly illustrated what happened here. The uh, shift. Yeah, the shift yeah. that happened because, and it did happen after the Reconstruction. So when you hear people talk about the Republican Party being the party of Lincoln, the Democrats are the ones that are the yeah. racist party. There was a shift where literally the values of the parties flipped. Mm-hmm. Um, and it happened after this period. Mm-hmm. So those are what the Jim Crow laws were. And we start seeing that coming into prominence at the end of the 1800s. Yeah. So in 1896, the National Association of Colored Women's Clubs develops in direct retaliation to an article written. So there was an article written that basically called black women thieves and prostitutes. <laughs> oh, good. Right. It was just basically like black women. There were they were always highly oversexualized, yeah. and then it also called them like thieves and, and prostitutes. Still are and they still are. And in retaliation of this, in 1896, the National Association of Colored Women's Clubs uh, was created. And Harriet Tubman, amongst other women, were founding members, including Ida B. Wells. Yeah. Yeah. In an 1899 meeting, suffragist Lottie Wilson Jackson tried to introduce a motion for the NAWSA to condemn segregated public transportation. The motion was tabled. When Martha Gernig asked... N-A-W-S-A to denounce white supremacy in 1911 National Conference, President Anna Howard Shaw refused, asserting that while she was in favor of colored people voting, that's a quote, not me saying it, (laughs) she did not want to anger other members of the movement. So we're seeing how it started and even like getting into like it's it's almost further and further pushing apart the apple like the, the intersectionality is even further further separating right. I mean, during the late eighteen ninety nine. I feel like this is the kind of like passive I almost want to say racism, but I feel like there's another word for this, but it's kind of the passivity. It's like, it's like I'm cool with them voting, right? but I'm not. But I'm also not going to stand up and rock the boat about it. Yeah. And I feel like we see this kind of, like, passive behavior in a lot of progressives today, even, who are kind of like, I'm in favor of this stuff, but also, I don't want to make too much noise. Like, I don't want to rock the boat too much. Yeah. You know, and... I think it was, like, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez who said that sometimes the most righteous thing you can do is shake the table. Yeah. And your lack of doing that, and also because it serves your interest. Yeah. I think that that's the definition of something that is anti-intersectional, is, like, you will not shake the table because it doesn't serve you personally to do so. Yeah. So this person, W.E.B. Dubois, challenges suffrage leaders' racist actions. When the NAWSA President Shaw claimed in 1911 that all Negroes were opposed to women's suffrage, Dubois opposed the barefaced falsehood and criticized the organization for its poor outreach to the black communities. When Shaw responded, claiming that blacks were not discriminated against in the NAWSA, Dubois countered with instance of discrimination at the most recent annual meeting. Yet Dubois encouraged his readers to support the movement despite its obvious shortcomings. He says, We tend to oppose the principle of women's suffrage because we do not like the reactionary attitude of most white women toward our problems. We must remember, however, that we are facing a great question 
of right in which personal hatreds have no place. Amen. What yeah. an amazing man. I um, thought it was a woman until it oh, said no. he, and I was yeah. like, that's why I just said person, because yeah. I thought it was a woman, and then I was like, oh, no, you're right. Yeah, it's a man. <laughs> um, He was an incredible man, but, like, talk about, like, going high when yeah. other people go low. Yeah, well, because, because they were claiming this whole thing, like, all... Again, I'm quoting these things when they say all Negroes were opposed to women's suffrage. We know. It's okay. I just want to be sure. That's not how Madigan speaks on the daily. <laughs> Can you imagine? The words colored and Negro don't come out of your mouth, typically. It's all right. And we're back to the late 1800s. <laughs> um, but I love that he challenges, like, the president of this major movement and he's like no 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 honey you're wrong as a black man even right. at, like i just feel like that is such an amazing thing and a dangerous thing right even, especially looking at the able... dynamics between like black men and white women exactly. in that time period to see how volatile that would look to the outside person right the looks fact threatening. that he was able exactly that yeah. he was able to stand up and be like no you're wrong. This is the way that you see it. That's not how it is. We are right. not against what you're for. You're against letting us in. Right. So it's I, the same fucking com- movement that's like, we don't want you on our public transportations. It's like, of course you're fucking racist. Right. Okay, Stupid so to people. go along with that, I wrote, because I just fucking love this woman. Like, I love her. Um, and so I wrote a good amount about her, and this seems like a good segue to go, and go into Ida B. Wells. So go for it. Ida B. Wells... We could do an entire episode on Ida B. Wells. I would love to. I think she's phenomenal. But she was a journalist. She's a black woman. And she was a journalist who gained prominence in the 1880s by refusing to give up her seat Mm -hmm. on a train and move to a Jim Crow car. So she was on a train. And when I was reading about this, I was like, why isn't this as well-known as Rosa Parks? Parks. Like, because this was the 1880s, and she was on a train. There was Jim Crow cars in the back. Maybe it was like the word of mouth wasn't as, like... Well, you know what I heard when I was, like, doing research for this is that it's because the people writing feminist history were Elizabeth Cady Stanton Mm -hmm. and Susan B. Anthony, and they wrote what they wanted to write as far as, like, what what history was going to remember. Well, and I just want to say that Ida B. Wells was born into slavery in Mississippi. Like, she has a a big reason to be so passionate as she was and be um, such a voice for black women. So she refused to give up her seat. She wouldn't move to the Jim Crow card. So she was forcibly dragged from the train uh, and kicked off of the train. Mm -hmm. She then goes on to sue the railroad for this action, which is just insane. Bonkers. Because I think about myself in that situation, and I'm like, I would probably have just gone home, tried to forget about it, just been like, you know what? Yeah. It, it was a bad day. <laughs> you know, I would have, like, moved on from it. Yeah, well, and, and she hired an African-American attorney, Yeah, too. she was like, not today. Yeah. We're going to make history today. Yeah. Because she was already a badass lady. You're talking about a time when black women, most black women were illiterate. And this right. woman was born into slavery and was a journalist. Yeah. So well, you're already... The one thing, though, it's, <laughs> like, she hired a black attorney, but then her lawyer was paid off by the railroad. So then she hired like, a white attorney. She's damn like, it. I was trying to do good here. Trying to help my community. <laughs> so she sued the railroad and then mm-hmm. she won her case and she received a settlement. The railroad did try to appeal, yeah, but it to didn't. the Tennessee Supreme Court. Yes, but it didn't go through. From that point on, she was really a very powerful voice for racial equality. Yeah. She started a famous anti-lynching campaign. Yeah. Which is, I mean, we, we talked about this on our last mini episode, but like... 
When I think about lynching, that's one of those things that is so visceral in my experience of learning about, like, what black people went through. And the prominence of that, I think I saved something that I will try and find that we can post it. um, Yeah. About the, someone kept a record of the, or tried to, it's impossible to know how many black people. She tried to keep record of lynching. Right, right. But, but there was also, there were several records taken, someone, someone went and collected them and tried to keep an overall record of the number. It's impossible to know because it happened so frequently and so informally that there's no way to keep an actual record. But I will try and find the video that I have that, Mm -hmm. that illustrates just the number of lynched black people Mm -hmm. in this country i recommend that everybody really turn and face that because it is such an ugly part of our history that it needs to be looked at um but she did start an anti-lynching crusade looking at and really like pushed for anti-lynching laws and a lot of this was worked within those black women's clubs yeah well and she she wrote in free speech and headlight urging blacks to leave Memphis altogether. Like she was like, right to get out of yes, here. Yes, because she was in Memphis at the time. She says, There is therefore only one thing left to do save our money and leave town, a town which will never protect our lives and property, nor give us a fair trial in courts, but takes us out and murders us in cold blood when accused by white persons. Oh, God, I want to name my daughter Ida. Do I it. I love it. I think that's so cute. Do it. Ida Marquez. <laughs> Ida Winfield Marquez. I'm gonna, Ida Winfield I'm gonna Marquez. hyphenate it. <laughs> yeah, I think it's a good idea. Um, so in 1892, she established her national reputation um, when she published a book called Southern Horror, mm-hmm. and it was all about like lynching laws. Yeah, lynch law in all its phases. Yes, she also helped found the NAACP. Yep. And in 1913 is really her claim to fame. So, in 1913, she founded the Alpha Suffrage Club of Illinois, which was the largest black suffrage club, mm-hmm. and she took them to a march. Uh, it was a NAWSA march in Washington, D.C., Okay, and black women were told to march in the back, yep. and she was not ready to be quiet about this. Nope, not it was at all. the same thing she did whenever she was on that train. She was like, not today, Satan. Nope. Not today. Yep. And a lot of white women were getting very uncomfortable and so at one point she steps off to the side she disappears in the crowd and the white women are like whew dodged a bullet thank god thank god for that yeah she waits until the parade starts and then she gets in in the front of the parade and marches in the front of the parade and she is photographed the press capture this moment Mm -hmm. and to me that is such... Why has there not been a movie about Ida B. Wells? Because, right. like, that is such a triumphant moment. The second moment. movie that I'm going to write... What was the first one that I'm going to write from the mini-episode? I cannot remember. Wait. Oh. Brock Turner. Brock Turner. Yes. And yes. now I'm going to write an Ida B. Wells. Movie. You heard it here first. You heard it here first, folks. Um, But to me, like, honestly, like, that fills me with so much, like, joy. Does it give you a lot of, like, really great inspiration too for those little things in your day-to-day life where you get a you just like let things pass you let things happen to you and you let and you become passive right instead of standing up for yourself and I think it's so easy because it's such small things that we don't think about standing up for ourselves but then when you look at at it on a grander scale you're like no I should be able to stand up for myself with these things well because it's it's like that um was it Maya Angelou I think it was a Maya Angelou quote where it's just like when one woman stands up for herself Without even meaning to, she's standing up for, for all other women. Other women. Yeah. And to me, thinking about being a black woman at this time, mm-hmm. right? In ni- It's 1913. 
you're feeling disenfranchised by the white suffrage movement. Mm -hmm. um, And looking at a newspaper and seeing a black woman in the front, marching in the front, would tell you... She's marching for everybody. Right. And it would tell you, like, I have a place in this movement. Like, I have a place in this movement. I should get out there and be in this movement, too. Well, and that's that's exactly what what that is. From Wikipedia, it says her call for all races and genders to be accountable for their actions showed African-American women that they can speak out and fight for their rights. Right. By portraying the horrors of lynching, she worked to show that racial and gender discrimination are linked, furthering the black feminist cause. Absolutely. Which I kind of like the idea of of black feminism at that time. I think now intersectionality is really important, but I like the idea of black women finding a place in both Black women needed to make their own community because it's like, I exist in a place where I'm not just black and I'm not just a woman. Like, I'm both of those things. They both have their own unique sets of problems. That's what intersectionality is. Like, you exist at these different intersections of humanity and both of those parts of you, or however many parts there are, have their own unique sets of problems, and those don't go away. You can't just choose one or the other. You have to exist under both of those. And you you shouldn't have to choose one or the other. Well, you can't. Like, you can't can't live life under one or the other because the world is going to see you as both. Yeah. You know, so it's it's one of those things. Did we already talk about how she opened the Alpha Suffrage record newspaper? No. Okay, she... So... The Alpha Suffrage Club was founded by Ida B. Wells, as we said. She was one of the co-founders and uh, and leader of this club. And um, she th- is the first to believe the first African-American Women's Suffrage Association in the U.S. They worked to publish the Alpha Suffrage Record newspaper to get people to voice their political opinions. And all the African-American women who participated in this movement and struggle against their exclusion from women's suffrage movement would wait 70 years or more to see the fruits of their labor. So they, like worked tirelessly with really no results for a really right. long time. No benefits. But wanted, yeah, but wanted to give African-American women the voices that they deserved. And because she was a journalist, I'm sure she had a lot of I uh, want to read that newspaper. Right? Oh, I do. I want to read it. Yep. Um, yeah, I mean, and in kind of, like, moving towards the end of this episode, I really want to say, like, while it's very clear that white women were very interested in optics, right? They didn't want a black woman marching in the front because while that was very inspiring to black women who would see that That's in the movement... That's not who they were playing to. They were playing to people who could give them money. And, like, you know, there was a lot of criticism around the Civil War, like, after the Civil War, where um, Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony both took money from a well-known racist to help get a feminist publication published. It just makes me think a lot about politics today, too, when we talk about, like, where our politicians get their money from and things like that. And I also and understand... they can be. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It is, it is two-faced. But I do want to say, like, as we're moving into the end of this episode, that I don't want this to come across as saying... We've said many times, people yeah. are multifaceted. There's a lot involved. Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony did a lot of really great things as well as a lot of really questionable things. Yeah. I'm not saying that every white suffragist was uh, racist or problematic. Like, I'm not saying that at all. Um, But I I think that we would spend a lot of time... Like, this episode would be very long if we, you know, 
had to go through every single person and saying whether they were racist or not. I right, think of that course. By saying that, and, I and by like 2019 of, standards, whether they're racist or not. Yeah, you know? exactly. Well, and I also just think that, like, because a lot of it was wiped away from history about the black women's involvement in the suffrage movement, that it's easy for us, it needs to be known that that there was a lot of racism involved. It's one of those things that because it wasn't talked about, we have to emphasize Right, it. and you need you to understand I mean? that, like, it's not... This was not a white woman's movement, despite the fact that we have a Susan B. Anthony coin and we yeah. don't have an Ida B. Wells coin. You yeah. know, this was not a white woman's movement. It wasn't a white woman's struggle. There were a lot of black women... Uh, who were very prominent and worked yeah. very hard, and in fact, probably harder because they were they not had two things to fight against. Right, at at they, once. Not only did they have two things to fight against, but they also had jobs, if you can call it a job, if yeah. you're a slave. Um, but they had other things going on. They were of a different class structure, and yeah. still, they didn't have the privilege of time and money and, and devoting all of their time to yeah. this one thing. Um, I will say because I know that it's something that people will think about and bring up is, of course these white women did some things that we think are reprehensible now and are in fact rep- reprehensible but At we also time. need to shift a lot of this focus onto the white men in power at the time. Because uh-huh. in some ways, I can see, although I think what they said and did was reprehensible, like I said, I can see how people like Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony felt like they were in between a rock and a hard place. Yeah. Because these white men were making rules. Yeah. They didn't have to make the 15th Amendment say male on yeah. it. Like, they didn't have to do that. Like, yeah. they chose to do that which totally changed and shifted the focus of the yeah. suffragette movement. And um, it's just easier to think about yourself a lot of the times, too, where it's like, at least we're winning one battle. Right. You, know you have I mean? to compartmentalize, like, what's going on um, and to justify it to yourself. And, like, while I think it's wrong, yeah. I think it's wrong, um, I also, in some way, can see how you could rationalize that to yourself. Yeah. Even though there were a lot of abolitionists, who was it? William Henry Garrison. We talked about him many times. He was like, uh, a lot of these women were Garrisonians. He was a very famous uh, abolitionist. Mm -hmm. Whenever Elizabeth Cady Stanton started saying a lot of the racist shit she was saying and like Mm -hmm. taking money from racists to like start feminist or suffragette publications, he was like, girl, what you doing? (laughs) Like, what are you doing? Like, you were an abolitionist for all this time. Yeah. And she was basically like, gotta do what I gotta do to get the suffragette word out. So it is what it is. Should we talk a little bit about what happens after the 19th Amendment was passed? Yes. So after the 19th Amendment was passed, African-American women, particularly those inhabited in the southern states, still faced a number of issues. They were prevented from voting in numerous ways. As were, um, as were black men. As were black men. Mm-hmm. Um, it was still very, very difficult. And white southerners specifically took notice of the African-American female activists. Because after the passage of the 19th Amendment, African-American women's voter registration in Florida was higher than white women's. Mm-hmm. So they're like, no, like, our power, like, of vote needs to count now in the white community well, because now everybody's like, we can vote! And here's the thing as well with that that I want to say. Um, black women have always been politically engaged. Yeah. Always. Always. Yeah. Like, if you wonder how certain progressive movements have come about, it's because black women fucking turned up to vote. Yeah. It is. Like, it's not because white women turned up to vote. A lot of times, it's not because 
Hispanic or black men turned up to vote. It's because black Black women women. turned up in huge fucking numbers to come out with a very progressive uh, viewpoint. Well, in some of the ways that they tried to prevent them from voting, uh, they would have to wait in a line for up to 12 hours to register to vote. They had to pay head taxes and undergo new tests. One of the new tests required that African-American women read and interpret the Constitution before being deemed eligible to vote. In the South, African-American women faced even more severe obstacles in voting. These obstacles included bodily harm and fabricated charges designed to land them in jail if they attempted to vote. I remember... And that didn't end Until the motherfucking 60s. Yes, into the 60s. I mean, if you watch the movie Selma or, like, have any understanding, which maybe we should do an episode on that, about, like, the the march in Selma. Let's do it. um, Sure, I'm totally down. That was a big part of it was these laws that were, or not even laws, but these just hoops that they were making people jump through. And I remember watching a movie that I'll never forget. Uh, Actually, you know, interestingly enough, Jesse Smollett, who was recently attacked with a a hate crime. His sister, Journey Smollett, uh, she was in a movie. Journey, yeah. She was in a movie when I was a kid. It was a Wonderful World of Disney movie when she was like, I want to say like 12 or, or, you know, a child. What movie is this? Selma Lord Selma. It's called Selma Lord Selma. And it stuck with me. It was all about that. It followed her journey, like, as a black girl in Selma, wanting to go to the riots and things like that. Yeah. And, um... I always remember the movie Ruby. Ruby? Yeah. Oh, yeah, I remember Ruby, too. But Ruby Bridges. Yes, yes. That was a good one. But Selma Lord Selma, what always stuck with me about that is that they really point out, um, and I don't know if this happened or not, I wouldn't doubt it, but it sticks in my brain, because I saw that movie so many times, Yeah. where she went to vote, she filled out, this woman went to vote, filled out all the information... And then they put a jar of jelly beans on the counter, and they're like, well, you have to tell us how many jelly beans are in this before you can vote. And she's like, really? And I don't doubt that they put Something equally like that. as yeah. ridiculous, ridiculous hoops, hoops well, for and these it really, people to jump through. It really is interesting, and I think we discovered this a lot last year when we were talking about the uh, what it was... Women's Rights Month in March, and we were going through all the different waves, how one really does go into the other when we talk a lot about these movements, where we the suffrage movement directly is integrated into the civil rights movement. It mm-hmm. goes into it very seriously, yeah. where we see that a lot of the same issues, obviously, were still being tackled, and I believe are still being tackled to this day Absolutely. in some way, shape, or form. Absolutely. There's no... Like, I feel like with the women's rights, the waves, you can see definite shifts right. a lot. Mm-hmm. But I feel like when we talk about any sort of like black rights movements, mm-hmm. it seems like they're all intermixed and intertwined. Like I have this image of almost like a braid. Like it's almost just being braided together. Absolutely. You it, know what I mean? It Where is and from you don't lose what's at the start of the braid to get to the end. It's still there and they're yeah. still fighting to work toward it. Yeah, absolutely. I feel the same way. And in some ways I kind of feel like when we talk about like waves of feminism, I feel like with black history and civil rights and like probably with a lot of other marginalized groups it feels to me almost like not like a two-step forward one step backward sort of thing but kind of like when waves are crashing on a shore and it like comes up and then it goes back a little bit little bit yeah. and then it comes back up and it goes back yeah. a little bit. like i feel that way because other things kind of step in and take you have place to keep then, reminding people right. of the other things that a lot of because i grew up with the notion that racism with the way that we were brought up to believe it didn't exist right. anymore right if and no I one's burning being, a cross on your lawn then it's fine right yeah. like i wasn't being taught the ways that racism had evolved because that's not what you learn in school and then it's like 
they get a whole month where we're going to talk about, like, three great black people. And right. it's good enough. Right. You know, that's all you learn. And you don't talk about Ida B. Wells. You talk about Rosa Parks, which is yeah. great. But you don't talk about Ida B. Wells. You I remember don't talk learning about, about Rosa Parks and Martin Luther King Jr. and Mal- Malcolm X. That's pretty much it. I that's mean, like, all that, I remember learning that, about and Harriet school. Tubman. And like, Harriet that's Tubman. what we cover. And we cover the same people we every were, year. And we, rec- and we cover, like, the bare minimum of them. And we don't go underneath because oh my God. Harriet Tubman is so oh, much such more. such a badass. So much such more. I mean, what she did is amazing with the Underground Railroad, but she did so she was much a fucking, shit. She was a motherfucking spy, y'all. Yeah. Like, she did some crazy shit. She was insane, but, like, we don't learn no. all that super and, cool stuff. And we don't learn about the complexities of Martin Luther King Jr. We don't learn that 80%. Which is why we need more black teachers. It my is. black teacher oh in middle God. school was badass. Amazing. Mr. Webster, shout out. He was amazing because he, like, he was the first teacher to ever talk to me about Malcolm X. He showed us the movie. He showed us, like, a very different side of, like, the Martin Luther King route that we had all learned because, like, oh, peaceful protests, the way to go, like, peace, peace, peace. Yeah, blah, yeah, blah, blah. That's, that's who he was. Where, like, mm. Yeah, and then it's like, let me show you this whole other side and teach you about all of these mm. other people that were influential yeah. and badass. I had a substitute teacher who was a black guy who, like, he knew he was going to be in our class for, like, two months because yeah. our, our main teacher, she was doing something for an extended period. And you could just see in his eyes that he was like... I got you for two months. I'm going to blow your mind. We're going to talk about nothing but black stuff for Yay! two months. And it was awesome. Like, <laughs> I'm like, God bless you. Like, God bless you. He is like, I'm this sure is my, a lot of things my duty. You didn't even know about because well, luckily, you were raised in a certain school system. Luckily, one, my mom was super, like, I actually got praised by that teacher because he's like, your mom did a good job because my mom was super. Yeah. She taught me a lot about black history. She taught me a lot about slave history. Um, and then, two, I did actually, which is which is actually kind of sad, given that we weren't given this education until this substitute teacher came in. I went to an elementary school, which was a magnet school, which is kind of in the inner city. But it was a magnet school, so... But it was in the inner city of um, Las Vegas. So it was majority black and Hispanic. But even then... Yeah. So I had a lot of experience with black kids, but not a lot of history, like black history. So that was interesting. So we're coming to the end. Do you have anything else? I don't. Okay. I don't either. Hopefully I feel like because my notes were such a blur, I'm hoping that everything that I said made relative sense. And listen, guys, (laughs) listen, there's so much to be covered on this topic. We understand that like we did not go into depth about other than really Ida B. Wells, we really didn't deep dive on any black suffragists. This would be a 12-hour long, because I started There's doing so many. bios There's on everybody. So many. I have a whole separate file, because I was like, this is going to be the longest episode Maybe we'll, we'll have. have another episode that's on forgotten black feminists, and we'll talk about some of these people. I think we definitely need to do at um, least one of those. Yeah, because they're... Contrary to popular belief, where we think there's just Sojourner Truth and Harriet Tubman and Ida B. Wells, like, there are so many black abolitionists and suffragettes who did so much, and I'm sorry we didn't get to all of them. Well, and there's also a lot of, I feel like, black activists who weren't in a place of where they may have been undereducated, so there wasn't a place for them to Not be a place able of to prominence. Have, uh, yeah, yeah. To, to be remembered in that way. There's a lot of people that did small things that made a huge difference. Absolutely. So, um, but if you can't tell, 
I'm super excited for Black History Month. So At your angry neighborhood feminist, Black History Month is four weeks long. Yes. We do yes. all of it. Yes. <laughs> so we are looking forward to bringing you some more awesome episodes that are Black-centric this month. <laughs> Next month, I think we will probably do Women's History again. Yep. Um, and kind of, like, spotlight that for you guys. If you have any Black feminists who you're, like... This is somebody I think you guys would really enjoy talking about yeah. or researching. So open to hearing about yeah, that. Totally. So please, please email us at neighborhoodfeminists at gmail.com. You can also get us on Instagram. We're about to start blacking up your feed. I'm what, what? very excited. Um, so you can get us there at Angry Neighborhood Feminist. You can also check out our Twitter. I mean, if you want to, at Yamf Podcast, Y-A-N-F Podcast. You can also get us on Facebook. We have a group page and a business page. You can leave us a review on Facebook or on Apple Podcasts. We were we look at both of those. Did you see the most recent one? Because it was really sweet. On which? On, on which Apple Podcasts. I don't think so. It was really sweet. They, like, mentioned, like, our friendship. <gasps> Oh, no, I haven't seen it's it. Really sweet. I have to look at I'm it. I'm going to read it to you when we're done recording because okay. it's really cute. Awesome. Well, if you guys have a review, please leave us reviews on Apple Podcasts and on um, Facebook. We love those. They brighten our day. and They we, really do. They really, really do. And we will feature you on Reviews Day Tuesday mm-hmm. on our Instagram page. Yes. Yes. So thanks, you guys, so much for listening. We hope that you really enjoyed this episode. We really hope that you have a great Black History Month and yes. enjoy it with us. And with all that being said, we encourage you to rage on. Bye. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am extremely excited to invite you to Rachel Uncensored. It's my podcast where I sit down and get real with my friends and celebrity guests where we talk about all sorts of topics, and sometimes we might be under the influence when we do so. We cover things from personal stories to hot-button issues, and it's the only place on the internet you can find an uncensored version of me. It's a side of me that you might not have seen before because it's not the most family or brand friendly. But don't worry, I'm still sort of slightly a decent human being. If you're intrigued, then make sure you check it out. New episodes drop every Wednesday. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored.